Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome and thanks for joining us. If not, welcome back. Just a few uh, quick announcements before we jump in this morning. First, I want you to mark your calendars for Sunday, July 18th, as that's the date of our next in-person gathering. We'll give you more details as the time gets more near. But second, if you're looking for connection and people to hang out with this summer, please, please, please check out our Kimfolk groups online. You won't be disappointed. And third, if you haven't started already, it's not too late to join us for our Hand Copying Proverbs Spiritual Formation Group this summer. This is a great way for you and your family to let the text of the scriptures speak to you in a different and profoundly deep way throughout the summer by simply copying down 10 verses a day in your own handwriting, or maybe a little more if you haven't started yet. Uh, You'll have a personalized hand-copied version of the scriptures of your own, along with your insights and the learnings that you've made along the way. So check out our details on the blog. Okay, so we're talking about Genesis. God has a narrative, a drama. And if the story of the scriptures is God's great drama, it really starts in Exodus and goes all the way to Revelation. The story really does start in Exodus for the Jewish people. That's why every year before Easter, millions of Jewish people and millions of Christians, they celebrate Passover meals and have Seder meals the week before Easter. Those meals are reenactments of the story of Exodus because That's where the story of God and his people really begins in the scriptures. The story of the Passover, the story of God taking his people and rescuing them out of Egypt. And then the whole rest of the narrative is about a new exodus for the whole world. Uh, An exodus of freedom from evil and sin out of the order of death. Out of their new Egypts, out of sin to slavery and rebellion and into freedom and new life. And this becomes the narrative of God. The book of Genesis is basically the setup, and I've taught this before in various ways, but I'd like to say that the book of Genesis has two things into it. It has the preface to God's narrative, number one, and number two, it has the introduction. The preface is Genesis 1 through 11. This is where God tries to set the stage, and he talks about big conceptual things. What is the nature of God, the nature of man, the nature of the world? And at the beginning of every good story, there is the setup, the buildup of a world so that you know the boundaries and the conditions within which the story takes place and an introduction. Think of maybe The Hobbit, if you're familiar with that. Tolkien writes about the contours of Middle Earth, the overarching power struggle of good and evil, the layout and the map of the lands, the Shire, Mirkwood, the Misty Mountains, Gondor, and of course, Mordor. And he includes the meta-narratives of the major people groups that are about to interact on a smaller scale, but on this really large stage. And the same thing happens in lots of stories, like in Narnia with the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, or Harry Potter, or whatever. Just pick your favorite series. In other words, there's the setup to the world you're about to walk into, and then there's an introduction. And here's what the world is like, is what it's about. And and then we're going to set the stage for the actual plot line. So in God's narrative, there is a preface. Who is God? Who is man? And what does the world look like? And Then you take that and you apply them then to the narrative. Um, And the narrative introduces you to this dysfunctional family known as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. When these characters start their drama on the setup of the stage from the preface, then you see how the story unfolds. This is what it looks like. So today, we're going to wrap up the preface that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Let's pick it up where we left off last week and look at Noah and his curse in Genesis 9, verses 18 and following. 
The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. And the question is, have we heard this story before? Have we heard a story about a garden? Somebody planting a garden, then eating fruit, then bad things happen. Let's keep going. And keep this question in, the, in, in your pocket. Why do they keep mentioning Canaan? Let's move on. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. So have we heard this story before? Planting a garden? Check. Eating fruit? Check. Bad things happen? Yes. Awkwardly focused on nakedness? Check. Next, in verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine, so he had sobered up, and he found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. Now, wait a minute. Have we heard a story where somebody plants a garden, eats of its fruit, bad things happen, it's awkwardly focused on nakedness, and then it ends with a curse? Yes. Yes, we have. Uh, moving on. Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. So we read this story, and Noah wakes up and finds out what happened, and he curses Canaan. Wait a minute. Why does he curse Canaan? Canaan was his grandson. Had Canaan done anything wrong? No, he hasn't. So why, do, why doesn't he curse his son, Ham? To understand this, we're going to have to unpack a few things in this story. First is the Hebrew phrase that we miss in the English. It's an idiom. And the phrase is, looked upon his nakedness. So in the Hebrew, to look upon nakedness is an idiom for one of two things. Some, some scholars say three things. But the two things it refers to are molestation or castration. And I bet you're paying attention now. The Hebrew phrase, to look is not just to look with your eyeballs. It means to look, to perceive, to understand. Sometimes it means to take in some instances, which is why when you apply to look upon nakedness, it becomes an idiom for either castration or that something worse that we put, we'll just put it delicately, delicately, it's something worse. The Midrash says that the proper interpretation is castration and the JPS Torah commentary, which I read, suggests that that's accurate as well because we don't hear about Noah having any sons or, or any kids after the flood. The question is, so what? To get to the bottom of this and see how it's relevant, we have to go back to this idea that this story is actually paralleling this other story, right? What story was it paralleling? Adam and Eve. Now, when you read that story in Genesis 2 and 3, at the very beginning of that story, there's this kind of random paragraph in, in Genesis 2.10. It's a little bit weird and it kind of seems like it means nothing. It seems kind of irrelevant. It's a paragraph about four rivers, and three of them have kind of more detailed description. And the fourth one, we're only told its name, Euphrates. And if you parse this paragraph literally in the Hebrew, one of the rivers is flowing in a circle, which is really weird. Four rivers, with three have details, and the fourth one we're told nothing about. And what's interesting is that in the Hebrew language, one of the things a river can symbolize is 
a lineage or a genealogy, kind of like a family tree. The family tree has branches. So to a river has tributaries like streams and creeks, snow, melt, runoff, that's going towards the, the, main, the main part of the river. So this is really, what, is, what this really is, is an image for genealogy. In the Noah story, Noah comes out of the ark and he's given the same command by God twice. It happens to be coincidentally, I suppose, the same command God gave Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply. So how many sons does Noah have? He has three. How many rivers were there? Three. And this goes back to Genesis 9, verse 19, where it says that Noah's sons were to branch out over the whole earth. And the rabbinical commentary here basically alludes to this. Noah is supposed to have a fourth son. He's supposed to come out of the ark and he's supposed to still have kids. The Midrash, which is the rabbinical commentary in the Talmud, and the Talmud is the collection of writings comprised of the Mishnah, the Jewish oral tradition, and the Gemara, which is the Jewish written tradition, all of which is focused on the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. The Midrash says that, of course, this phrase to look upon his nakedness is castration because how many kids does he have? He only has three. And will he ever have a fourth? And it also explains why Noah wakes up and he curses his grandson because this is not a curse of injustice. It's not a curse that's legal in nature that's trying to make wrong things right. This is a curse that's bent on vengeance. You want to take my ability to have kids away? Then I'm going to curse your kids. And in doing this, Noah, he doesn't even curse Ham who did this. He curses Ham's kids. You want to hurt me and my family? I'm going to hurt you and your family. Whoa. And you see, all of a sudden, this story, it's like the first time we talked about humanity. They had to learn to say enough. They had to learn to say stop. They had to learn how to be fully human. They're not animals. They're supposed to know how to say enough. And the first time, it was all about their creative desires, their desire to indulge their animal appetites. But this second time, we run into it right now, right here, it's like humanity has grown up, but now we're going to talk about their destructive powers. Noah, don't curse Canaan. Don't do it. Canaan didn't do anything. Why would you curse him? Don't let your vengeance consume you. Noah, you were made in the image of God, and so are your sons and your grandsons. Well, let's go to this table. There are actually eight stories that are comprised in the, in the preface of Genesis. Genesis 1 is about creation. Genesis 2 and 3 about Adam and Eve. The four, chapter 4 is about Cain and Abel. Chapter 5 is a genealogy. Genesis 6 through 9 is Noah and the flood. Genesis 9 through 10 is the vineyard and the curse. Genesis 11, the first half is about the Tower of Babel, and the last half is about the genealogy. So let's put the stories up here on the screen for you uh, to see. The story of creation was a story about the goodness of creation. Remember, it was good, and God saw that it was good. It was about God's acceptance. And then Adam and Eve was a story about a garden and a story about fruit, a story about nakedness. And the temptation was to indulge, to indulge their animal appetites. What the New Testament calls this is sarks. And then Cain and Abel, the, the whole story of Cain uh, hinges upon his name. His name means to acquire. It's a story about his name and it's a story about wandering. And when Cain gets told he's going to be a wanderer, he freaks out. He says, that can't be what you, how you punish me. Don't let that happen to me. And when he leaves, the first thing he does is he tries to build a city for his son. What I want you to see there is that he's trying to settle. 
God's like, you're going to be a wanderer? And he's like, no, I want to build a city and settle. And God's like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. And then there's a genealogy. So now let's look at the other side of the diagram. The story of Noah and the flood is about the goodness of creation and God's acceptance. And you're saying, no, I don't think so. It's a story about God destroying the earth. Well, kind of, but not really. If it's a story about God wanting to destroy the earth completely, then how come in the very next sentence after God says, I'm going to destroy the earth, he goes out to find a partner who's going to help redeem and save it. So he's not very good at destroying the, the earth, is he? The story is actually about the goodness of creation. At the end of this story, which happens to be a chiasm, which we've talked about in earlier messages, God's insistence is that even if the whole world does become corrupt, he will never destroy it again. And the question is why? Well, because there's no level of corruption that will outdo and undo the inherent goodness and potential of his creation. This whole story is an insistence on the goodness of creation, and it's a retelling of Genesis 1. So if you notice the back half of the chiasm, everything happens out of the ark in the exact same order of the creation story, which is really interesting. The first thing that happens in Noah, Noah's story is he opens a window and there is light, like day one. And then the rain stops, and all of a sudden we have a vault, and there's sky, day two. And then the ground opens up in the Noah story, just like day three. Eventually, as you keep going through this story, the birds go into the air and the animals come out of the ark and Noah and his family come out of the ark. So animals and then humanity. This whole story, what I want you to see, is a retelling of Genesis 1. And we have already done the vineyard and the curse. It's a story about a garden. It's about fruit. It's about nakedness. It's about this temptation to indulge. But in this case, instead of indulging in our animal appetites, Humanity is going to indulge. We're going to indulge in our desire for vengeance to strike back. We're going to talk about the Tower of Babel in just a moment. But what I really hope becomes clear to you here is that these stories, they are paralleling the stories that came before them. And so if you're really paying attention, you're probably asking from weeks prior, is there another chiasm here? And the answer is, yeah, there's really big, giant chiasm comprised of several smaller ones. On the first half of this chiasm, it's about our creative powers. And God invites us to say, enough. So we need to learn how to rest. On the back half of the preface, is it's all about our destructive powers. And God is inviting us to say, enough, and know how to then engage, and then know how to reconcile. So this preface is trying to deal with those two realities. And if I'm looking at this, I, th- I should then be able to kind of know or conjecture what the Tower of Babel story is going to be all about, right? I know the Tower of Babel is going to be about something to do with a name, something to do with wandering, and something about the desire to settle. But then it's going to be denied. So let's take a look at those scriptures in Genesis 10, verse 32. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a, language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, 
If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called, that is why it was called Babel, because the Lord, there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And when we get done reading that, we find out that this story actually is about a name, about wandering, about a people trying to settle, but then being denied. And if you really want to reinforce the fact that this story is about settling and being denied, you just look at the chiasm that's here. The reason we started in verse 1032 uh, is because 1032 is the beginning of the chiasm. The phrase is, in that verse, from these nations, this, from here, the nations scattered over the face of the earth. And then the phrase in 11.9 says, the Lord scatter them over the face of the earth. And it's the same phrase in Hebrew. And that would alert us to the chiasm. You, don't, you won't see this in English, however, because the chiasm is based on the same four Hebrew consonants used in the same order over and over again on the front half of the story. There's four consonants, you know, like B, D, H, you know, consonants. So, and they go like this, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, on the first half of the chiasm. And on the back half of it, the same four consonants are used in reverse order, which is way going nitty gritty here, but it just essentially goes four, three, two, one, four, three, two, one, four, three, two, one. So what I want you to remember is that chiasms always sharpen your focus and snap it to attention on the treasure that you're gonna find at the center, in the middle. And in this case, it's the phrase, otherwise we will be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the whole face of the face of the whole earth. This is what this story is about. They want to settle. And that raises some curious questions. Why is God threatened by this? Is he really threatened by mankind? I mean, that's just strange. That's just kind of weird. Like God's over here going, uh, we better do something about this. Why is it like, we, why don't we do something? They're going to accomplish anything. Why is it a bad thing that they would accomplish anything? Because I thought God wanted us to accomplish. You know, in the New Testament it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So why is this about that? Why does it seem that God is trying to stop this? Well, just like our other teachings in this series, one of the things we want to try and do is look at this story in the way that the author and his first readers of this story looked at it. We called that the authorial intent. This story, to them, they would have noticed the geography. And we don't notice it because we don't think that way because it's over there and a long time ago. But geography would show us that when they leave the Garden of Eden, which direction do they head? They head east. And when Cain is banished, which direction does he go? East. And if you pay attention to the genealogy, you're going to notice that all these nations of people, all of them that come out of there, are in what direction? East. And then God has the flood and he brings the ark back where? West. Because that's where God wants his people to be. And they leave the ark and then what happens to them? Where do they go? They go east. And then Noah's sons go where? East. And then the Tower of Babel starts with all of the people moving east and wanting to settle. And God says, you can't do that. I have to get you back over there. You remember the first story, God put a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the tree of life. And he put it there not to punish them because if they eat from the tree of life now, they're going to be stuck in their broken condition. 
He's like, I can't let you back to the tree of life until you understand redemption. And when you finally understand redemption, then that'll be something different. By the way, everyone, basically, I'm going to make, hammer this point home. Everyone's moving east. But later in the story, there's a guy named Abraham who comes along. And which direction is he going? He's going west. And God's like, oh, well, you, you're, you're willing to go against the flow. I could use a guy like you. But in this case, God can't let his people settle because if they settle there, they're going to be stuck there forever. And he's like, I need to get you back to the tree of life. And the question is, in this grand narrative that God is telling about himself, will they ever make it back to the tree of life? And the answer is yes. In Revelation, they will. So humanity does eventually end back over here on this side. Humanity does learn about redemption, how to partner with God. And they know how to say enough. And they partner with him to bring it all back together. But there's this thing in the story where God can't let them settle. And here's the point. This isn't supposed to be about punishment. This is a challenge. God says, if they put their minds to it, they can do anything. But the problem is this. What they want to do is make a name for who? They want to make that name for themselves. So God says, I can't let you settle. I'm going to mess up your languages and they all scatter. The only way they'll ever be able to accomplish anything will be if they learn how to put God first. And how will they learn to put God first? Well, they have to learn now how to speak, to speak other people's languages. Because you can't, you can't learn to speak someone else's language without saying, look, I have no clue how to do this. Will you teach me? I don't know. I need help. You have to put yourself down in order to learn something you don't understand. And God says, until you learn that lesson, putting yourself down, making yourself nothing, then this, per this world can't be put back together until you learn that, until you learn self-sacrifice. You won't be able to put it back together and partner with me in this redemptive work. If you wanna make a name for yourself, it's always gonna tear the world apart. But if you wanna make God's name great, learn how to love other people. That's amazing, isn't it? Is this the God of the Old Testament or the New? Because it seems, my goodness, I mean, it seems like they're the same. Sounds like God is really not all that angry in the Old Testament. It kind of sounds like he's full of love and the same stuff I read about and you read about in Jesus. See, what I want you to see in this story is in a lot of ways, it's about technology. They've created this brick. They've created a new form of technology and the technology is not bad. There's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. The technology comes about because we take God's creation and we properly order, order and steward it. So the technology is not the problem. The question is, how will you use it? That's the problem. The internet, it's incredible, but how will you use it? Nuclear reaction, how will we use it? This story is about how you're going to use new things. Is it going to be for you or is it going to be for others? And by correlation, if it's for others, then maybe it's for God's purposes. Because God says, if you really want to do things for me, then make it about others. And you, you might say, for, forget others. I just want to give it to God. And God says, no, if you, if you want to give it to me, then you need to give it to others. If you want to obey me, love other people. If you love me, you will obey me. And this is my commandment, Jesus said, that you would love one another. We really desperately need to learn this. And maybe this will make you angry, but I know 
I know I need to learn this too. I, I was raised in a Christian subculture. Maybe that's you. And that Christian subculture, it said, if they want to come here, they can learn our language and then they can obey our rules. They can abide by our standards. Welcome to the Tower of Babel. Research was done a few years ago from Pew that said 62% of Americans believe that Muslims are dangerous but don't have a significant ongoing daily relationship with any Muslims, which had a direct correlation for people who did have direct ongoing relationships with Muslims who thought the exact opposite. And there's all kinds of stuff and stories and statistics every day about this in our news streams, fighting against each other. And they're all kind of the view straight from the Tower of Babel. I think this is what God's trying to teach humanity in the story of Babel. I can't let you build a tower here to make a name for yourself. That's not why I put you here. I put you here to make a name for others. And through that, you're making a name for me. I put you here to love other people so that people would see the goodness of God. This is just like what John said in the New Testament, 1 John 4, verse 12. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. And then people, then people do see God. So ultimately, in order to make God's name great, the actual formula we were given in Genesis at the beginning of the story, and it's at the end in 1 John, it's all the same. We have to learn how to love other people. We all need to learn this. So if you go to the mall or you drive down the freeway or you go to a concert or a movie or a sports game or a grocery store or someplace on vacation or you're flying on an airplane, maybe you'll discover, like I have, that I have unbelievable prejudice in me. And I like, I like to consider myself open-minded and thoughtful, but we all have this stuff deep down that's ugly when it comes to interacting with and loving and being at peace with others. And Jesus is trying to change that in my heart and in yours. And that's what I'd like you to consider letting Jesus do. That he would do that to your heart. That you would let him do that to your heart. And so I want to give you, I want to leave you with some implications. And the first one is this. It's God's job to take care of the retribution and injustice. God asks us to partner with him in redemption, but leave the vengeance to him. It's God's job to take care of the retribution and injustice. It's not ours. We partner with God in redemption. He asks us to help him put the world back together. Help me engage the brokenness and clean up the messes. But when it comes to vengeance, he says, leave that to me. I don't need any help with that. Number two, we need to assume the best in others. And we, we honestly have a really hard time with that. We have to trust that people are doing the best they can to believe and assume the best in other people because only then will I actually say, well, I'm assuming that you're trying to do your best, so tell me more. What's your worldview about this? You know, uh, That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. This doesn't mean that you don't ever call someone out for doing something bad and make an excuse for them. Some people are destructive and they need appropriate parameters and you don't need to stay around them. But what this second implication means is that our fundamental posture in the world isn't, you know, this. It's, hey, hey. The third implication is our call is to actively listen to others and try to understand their worldview. And I mean actively listen to them. Like, I want to understand more. Explain to me more about that. How do you, how do you see that? When I say this, why does that make you cringe? Why does that make you angry? 
tell me more. I never knew that you would hear it that way. So, okay, I'm going to adjust how I say that because that's not what I meant. That's not what I mean. Lastly, building towers of correctness is never going to redeem the world. Lots of churches are just trying to build a tower of correctness. And, and I've got to ask, what, what does that do? I'll tell you. It really only builds a name for them. But choosing to build others up and call out their humanity, like, is your enemy made in the image of God? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Your enemy is made in the image of God. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but way down deep underneath all that stuff that they have that you may or may not understand, that person is made in the image of God. And when you can try to build them up and call out their humanity, it builds up the name of God in whose image they are made. So let's do that. Let's be about that. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.